Hello friends and welcome back to It's All Relative, the show that explores life's issues through a generational lens, helping us understand how we are evolving as consumers, workers and citizens. Each episode I shall be tackling a juicy question that I want answered by interviewing experts, voices and practitioners along the way to unravel the complex answer. Today we are addressing an issue central to any discussion about generational difference and that is education. And yet we are analysing it through the prism of race. Because we can't escape race when it comes to education. Black boys are more likely to be excluded than any other ethnicity and are more likely to excel in anonymized exams rather than internal assessments marked by their teachers. 86% of teachers in state schools are white and British, but that obviously jars with the diverse makeup of contemporary students, where one in four primary school pupils are from an ethnic minority, which is an increase of almost half a million since 97, and almost one million school children speak another language apart from English as their first language. Joining me to discuss this challenge is author, campaigner, educator and broadcaster Jeffrey Boachy. He is the author of numerous books about black British identity and culture, covering everything from black millennial masculinity to grime. And in 2023, he will publish a new series designed for children called Kofi and the Rap Battle Summer out on the 1st of June. Jeffrey is the recipient of an honorary doctorate from the University of Leicester and is currently senior teaching fellow at the University of Manchester's Institute of Education, inspiring the next generation of teachers. He also writes a substack entitled Are You Sitting Comfortably? His most recent book, I Heard What You Said, is framed around comments and questions that he experienced working as a black teacher. Some shocking, some more innocent, but all revealing of what it was like to be a black teacher in a predominantly white profession, teaching a predominantly white curriculum in a school headed by predominantly white leadership, but with pupils who were increasingly multicultural in their makeup and their outlook. The story he tells, in his own words, was about the gradual repositioning of his blackness at the centre of his teaching and what that meant for his pupils, his colleagues and ultimately for himself. Jeffrey, welcome to It's a Relative. Hello. Keep going. That was great. I was enjoying that. That's your obituary. I hope you like it. (laughs) (laughs) So I loved, I heard what you said. I've read it twice, actually. What I loved about it was the autobiographical real life experiences that you document. So I wondered if we could begin with your own experiences of growing up in Brixton in the 1980s and specifically your education and perhaps teachers that you encountered that really reflected your identity in important ways. Growing up in Brixton in the 1980s and 90s, you have to remember straight away that contextually you're in a very, very multicultural setting. It's so obvious it's almost not worth saying, but it's really important because Brixton has always been largely a black community. We're talking the Caribbean diaspora. And then when you get into the 1970s, West African nations, Ghana, Nigeria, and so on. So you've got these kind of like meeting of cultures And I fall into that because I'm black British. So immediately, just growing up in Brixton, I'm understanding a wider perspective of blackness. I've got links to Jamaican culture, Bayesian culture, Trinidad and so on, St. Lucia. So that means that I'm exploring an identity that is outside of my home. That's really important. That's the first thing. I still get little tiny kids look at me with complete curiosity because I know that they haven't got a lot of diversity, quote unquote, in their lived experience. So seeing me as a black person is a moment of curiosity. I was growing up with people around me that I didn't live with. You're living in a very multicultural space. And what tends to happen there is it's a meeting point of various cultures. 
it was a an education in blackness because I was learning about the black diaspora, this kind of normalization of diversity. You don't need to reach for diversity. You don't have to make it happen. It just exists. So me growing up in the 80s and 90s in Southwest London, that was the education that I was getting. Ultimately, a multicultural classroom is an invitation to learn and to develop relationships. That's what it is. Beryl Gilroy wrote a book called Black Teacher in the 1970s. She was the first black head teacher in this country. The book is incredible because she just has to drop all of her knowledge and her expertise and learn about a multicultural London environment. And in that process, she becomes an amazing teacher, an amazing community figure. And that's what my teachers probably had to do. They just had to know about different communities. And I think it did make the school quite special because the dominant community or the dominant ideology couldn't dominate. That's kind of what I initially feel like I was learning as I was growing up. Tell me about Mr. Siebel. He was an English teacher that I had from year seven onwards. He was from Uganda. So he was known as an African teacher because people from Africa is one place. He taught me English and he's the only black teacher I've ever had, which is a really big deal because A, there's the representation, just fascinating to have someone with the optics of your identity in a position of authority in that particular context, like school, where there are no other black teachers. And second, he was someone who was interested in the development of his students holistically. So when he saw that I had a bit of a talent or a penchant for literature, it was amazing. He just took me on board as a, one of many projects that he had, like, how far can we go with this? He would give me texts that were not on the curriculum. I would read In the Heat of the Night. I would read Shakespeare plays that no one else was reading. I would read Othello. He just saw that I had an appetite for it. So I was so lucky. It's not about him just being black and I'm black. It was about being seen as whole. One of the, I suppose, worrying things about modern teaching is they're not given the time to do that. I wondered if we could then just leap forward to now and perhaps unsurprising statistic that 86% of teachers in state schools are white and British and 76% are female. I wonder if you could just give us a bit of context about how that situation disparity has come about. Just articulate the pressing priority for more black male teachers specifically. Non-white teachers don't feel safe enough to enter the profession and to stay in the profession because the ones that do enter the profession leave at higher rates. If you look at all sorts of non-white ethnicities, they just leave at higher rates. So there's something going on in education which is not inviting diversity and it's not making the sector safe enough for people to stay within teaching. So that becomes an issue of what's going on there. And it's because ultimately education is one of the big arms of society. It's one of the big institutions that we all interact with. Healthcare, criminal justice system, industry, education, it's huge. And it's going to reflect the wider societal ideology that we're all born into. So it's going to reflect white supremacy. This idea that whiteness as constructed in the 1600s is better than non-whiteness and therefore demands a certain level of respect and power and prominence. So you've got the echoes of that thinking in education. You've also got gender politics kicking off as well, because teaching has been seen as a more nurturing, caring, less professional, less financially powerful way of making a living. Because of sexism, that means that it's something which women in this part of the world have been allowed to do. So default sexism and white supremacy, the intersection of that is what you see in education. Because when you go up the rungs of power in education, it's all men. 
So the more power you have, the more money you earn, the more men there are. That's just basic sexism. So that's the picture that you step into when you start looking at education. One of the things I really liked about your book was you were really honest about how you had to contort yourself yeah. as a black man in a white world. Yeah. And you said just by existing, I was a provocation to the status quo. Mm. And I want you to talk about your clothing because I feel like that was like a really pivotal <laughs> armour, right? Yeah, listen, the whole thing about entering any space, physically, literally, or conceptually, is your safety is paramount. So education is a space that I entered. I remember giving strong advice not to become a teacher from people slightly older than me that had tried it and they just got battered by it. Black women that were just put under immediate stresses, facing the intersection of racism and sexism, the mental health, the trauma. I was warned, don't do this. And it's not safe because the whole of you is not being recognised. If I'm going into like a dinner party situation, it's a metaphor that I use all the time and my dietary requirements are not known. It's not safe. If I do not want to eat this food that someone's laid out for me and they said, come and eat this food, look at this amazing table, but I don't want to eat it. It's not safe for me. What if I don't want to sit next to your weird uncle and have this conversation I don't want to have? It's not safe. But if I say this stuff, mm. what happens? I'm the problem. Yep. So what do you do? You don't say it. Can I just go back to the dinner party analogy? Because you used this in your recent Substack I was reading. Being the host feels like that's where the hard work takes place because you've got to set everything right. up. You've got to lay out the expenditure to pay for this. You've got to organize that. You've got to say what time people come in. Being the host feels like big work. Being the guest is always harder work because you've got to live by the rules that have been laid out for you. And the minute you sniff at the decor or you say, I'm not eating that, you become the problem. Yeah. So if you are marginalized in any way, if there's a part of your identity that is not dominant, and most people have got some part of their identity that's not dominant, you can become the problem just by voicing that part of your identity. Yep. That's why I said that by existing as black, I was a provocation to the status quo. And that's why I never talked about it because it disrupts this situation of calm control. And the control is coming from the same sources, whiteness, masculinity, able-bodiedness, heteronormativity. The minute you come out of that, you become a part of the problem. So what do you do? You just shut up about it. That way you can guarantee your survival, if not your safety. Fussy eater and an introvert, dinner parties is my idea of hell. In terms of clothes then, can you just tell me about your use of clothes as like this armour? Because I think it's interesting. It's something which I wouldn't have even realised about myself until much later. If you read the book, you sort of see there are moments of realisation. So when I stepped into teaching, one of my things was I was very particular about the way I dressed. Mr. Seba, since he's been my teacher, because we're still in touch, he told me the same thing. He was always impeccably dressed. This guy looked amazing. Everything was clean and sharp and tidy. And he's told me since then, there was no way I was going to be the stereotype of the underprepared, scruffy teacher because I was a black male teacher. And as a black teacher, I already felt like I had to prove myself. Do you have any idea how traumatic that is? To not be able to just exist comfortably. I overperform. I over-deliver. And that is a complete insecurity because I'm living in a world where due to my race designed before I was born, a world I was born into, I have got certain lead weights around my ankles that means that I can't fly freely. So part of that over-deliverance was my sartorial expression. I like fashion, but it was part of my armour. And my armour is multifaceted. It's partly what I look like. It's partly my very energetic approach to the classroom. It's partly being really nice to people. Other people have got different armor. 
Some people are miserable and moody and grumpy. That's just a persona. Some people are frantic and manic. That's also a front. It's a way of controlling the world, a winning strategy. And then you had kids. They're really good at disarming you in so many ways and certainly ruining clothes. Because kids see you. They see the core of you. And I like that being seen as me. When you teach, there's a polite moment. It lasts about six minutes. And after that, they see the core of you. And I like that being seen as me. It's where I could be myself. It's probably why I chose to spend years of my life with young people rather than going into corporate environments where the mask is what people see. Kids see you. I want to be seen. I like being in a classroom full of young people. It's honest. A child can see through most of the BS. It is that position of vulnerability, but also freedom. I think that's really important. And for me, becoming an adult, becoming a black professional, I could instinctively feel that I needed to be around realness. Your story is what you'd call the gradual repositioning of your blackness at the centre of your teaching. Could you just flesh out what you mean by that? It means that I've got a lived experience in which my black identity is key. I've really talked about growing up in Brixton in the 80s and 90s. I was living in the Black Atlantic. That's a term coined by Paul Gilroy in 1993, the Black Atlantic. It's the intersection of Black America, Black Britain, Black Caribbean, Black Africa. So I was growing up completely immersed in Black cultures that have got nothing to do with my parents' heritage. Like there's a reason why these things are important, like watching House Party, watching It's a Different World, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, black music, hip hop, R&B, soul. Then you go to the Caribbean, reggae, ska, dancehall culture. This is a meeting place of different black communities. So I've got all that in me and I've learned it. Having like that in me is something which the mainstream spaces I enter doesn't ask for. There was no point in my teacher training where teaching asked me, what about your blackness? At no point. It was never, ever talked about. So as I grow in myself, I'm bringing more of myself out because why not? I'm not the guest at a dinner party anymore. This is my dinner party. You're going to meet me. So the music I like comes to the forefront. It's not an accident I wrote a book about grime. My perspectives on race come to the forefront. I had to teach these kids about Stephen Lawrence. They'd never heard of Stephen Lawrence. That's a big part of my identity. It was bringing me into the center of the teaching conversation and using that as the place to start building relationships from. We can all do that. Every teacher has got continents of unexplored identity that actually are going to be so valuable for their young people to meet. Was it then more of a personal journey? And secondly, did it make you a better teacher and easier to connect with your students? When you're teaching, there's a triangle, student, teacher, text. Text isn't just a book. Text is what's happening, like the texture. It could be a book. It could be music. It could be an idea, a philosophy. It could be a particular academic skill, but that's what you're inviting kids to connect with. But you need to connect with the text as well because the kids are connecting to the text and me. That's why it's a triangle. It's the strongest shape. So that triangle, you need to be well aware that you are part of the puzzle. You, your idiosyncrasies, your lived experiences, your problems are part of that triangle. And the connections are where it happens. It's where the magic happens. We haven't talked about the fact that blackness is a social currency. Do you think it's an accident that since the birth of the teenager, blackness has been intrinsically linked to youth culture, be it rock and roll music all the way up to UK drill and everything in between? Synonymous with cool. Always synonymous with cool. It is a currency for young people. 
That's why that now the hottest music out tends to be black artists doing some variant of black music. So when we get into that, the kids are connecting to my blackness. We have a connection that is alive. And actually, because I'm living in black culture, I'm connected to them in a way that other teachers might not be because I listen to the same music they listen to. I've lived the experiences that some of the people that they see as very cool and interesting are documenting through their music and through their art. So I lean on that connection. Of course, it makes me a better teacher. But this is the kicker for me that every teacher has that. It's just that the dominant ideologies are the ones that sometimes take up all the airspace. But I let my blackness take up the airspace. I kind of had to, though, because I started talking about it after my first book. People realized I was black. Wow. I came out as black in 2017. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, even that phrase feels quite significant. One of the things, if you could just set out for those that haven't read the book, you know, each chapter is, I think, really cleverly set around these comments, these statements that you've encountered as a black teacher. Would you give us a sense of some of those clumsy assumptions and stereotypes and even like instances of blatant racism that you encountered? It's everything from stereotyping, which is often quite funny and painful because that's how stereotypes work. So kids asking me, can you rap? And it's like, what do you mean, can I rap? Why are you asking me, can I rap? What, because I'm black? And then the answer being, yeah, I can rap, (laughs) which is just funny because I've steeped myself in hip hop culture. And in a way, some of those moments, it's almost like a reaching out, a young person trying to create a relationship. Wagwanji. It's like, what are you talking about? I'm not Jamaican and you're speaking Patois to me because you assume that because I'm black, I speak in a certain way or that I'll be receptive to a certain informality. It's prejudiced, but it's also they're trying to connect. Then you get problematic stuff. Have you been to prison? It's like, well, you're asking that question because you're not stupid and you know that black people are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. But in the world that you have grown up in, you've seen blackness as criminalized. So there's a whole curriculum there that suddenly needs to be alerted. And then you get all sorts of more subtle things like Jeffrey's nice, which I've heard so often. That's an interesting thing to say about someone. Unpick that for me. First of all, I am nice. You know, I'm, <laughs> I am, I'm very friendly. But at the same time, there's a relief that Jeffrey's nice because when you're the only black teacher in an entire community of teachers, people are drawing on whatever stereotypes and experiences of blackness that they've got. So there's something interesting there about the presentation of black masculinity in people's worlds and their lived experiences. Nice equals non-threatening. Yeah. And I have to be non-threatening too. So that's the other side of things. I have to be nice because I'm hypervigilant to the opposite thing. I know that people are wary or not sure. It's really interesting. Like I'm going to write about it on my Substack, but that first meeting with people that obviously don't know a lot of black people in a particular setting, you realize when you meet them the second and third time, how wary they were the first time they met you. And you realize how tense they were the first time, not because of fear necessarily. I'm not going to like start guessing as to what people are feeling in their heart, but definitely a sense of, I don't quite know how you fit into this situation. And I get that a lot. I get that in lots of different contexts. Two comments in the book really stuck out for me. The first is the kid that said to you, why is everything bad black? That really stuck with me. I found that just sad. And the second thing was that other teacher, when you said your girlfriend was white, I think he said, oh, I thought she was white, which just made me angry. Could you just touch on those two individual instances, contextualize them for us? People are trying to make sense of the world around them. So in that latter case, when someone's like, ah, I knew she'd be white. In that little phrase, there's a whole series of value judgments about how I present myself, how I can fit into a dominant mainstream white supremacist ideology, what my world looks and sounds like. 
and therefore what my partner would be in order for me to make sense in their world. There are like, there's a whole list of assumptions that are made there. And that really annoyed me deeply because you can't make assumptions about anyone. Like you don't know what's in people's heads and hearts. It's almost like there's a presumption that, oh, I'm not quite sure what box to put you in. Okay, now I know what box to put you in. Yeah. And there's a presumption that I have entered whiteness in a way that means that that's why I can be so approachable and I can be seen and I can be understood and I'm safe. All of that was in that one statement because you've got no idea about why me and my wife are together, what we live through, what we talk about. It was a harsh reminder of how we're often trying to play with identity, looking at like the biggest blocks, like Duplo side, not the little Lego. <laughs> and we're trying to talk about the nuances of identity using Duplo bricks. This is just ridiculous. And then the other one, like, why is there anything bad black? Again, it was a little peak out of the waters of white supremacy constructed since the mid 1660s, whereby whiteness has been designed as supreme and to reign supreme and pure and therefore good. And its opposite is its opposite which is a construction for reasons of economic and ideological exploitation that fed into science, that fed into structures and institutions. So, of course, blackness is synonymous with badness. That was a reminder of the way white supremacy has been seeded into society. In literature, you see it a lot because the canon is very much speaking to dominant British imperial, heterosexual, white voices. You can go through your whole educational career and the only black character you'll meet in a book might be Crooks in Of Mice and Men, who is Mm. this kind of like slightly traumatised and warped soul who is struggling to fit into a world. And that's the only black character you're going to meet. Whoa, that's huge. So the breadth of humanity that you get across all cultures is just withheld. I just want to read a statement that you wrote in the book. It really stuck with me. If young people go to school to learn that black lives matter most when they are either paragons of liberal virtue, Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela, Rosa Parks, or shocking examples of denigration and oppression, George Floyd, Crooks the Stable Buck, then how can we ever expect them to accept black as equal to white in the spectrum of nuance that constitutes humanity? That for me was such an important point. I'm British. I'm not a guest in this country, right? That gives me a certain amount of power because it comes with imperial weight. I speak one language that's so arrogant. But at the same time, my blackness completely others me because of white supremacy. And Britain imperially has a link to white supremacy and racism. So when you add all that up, you've got this weird situation where ability to just be is something which I suddenly haven't got. If I was born in a black majority context where there was no such thing as white supremacy within that context, I could just be. The examples that I listed are the extremes. And my options to really make it in this society are either to become completely denigrated and to become a victim, someone that people can pity, crooks, George Floyd, victims of, or to become this paragon of virtue because whiteness is happy to have paragons of virtue. Nelson Mandela, even though he's a freedom fighter, this guy's a provocation. Martin Luther King, again, these are people doing resistance. Barack Obama. Do you know how perfect Barack Obama is compared to someone like Donald Trump or George W. Bush? Like, actually, when you think about it, he's over-delivering on every front. The guy's over-qualified for the job. He's the cleanest president. Cleanest president you've ever had. He has to be. Yeah, and that's not fair. And I feel that way because... I'm the same. Mr. Seb is the same. Young teachers that I train, teachers who are black and brown or just not white, they all say the same thing. They over deliver. 
they overcompensate. We've got to be A-star students. Your comment on that was your honesty about the burden of being the only black teacher in the school. I wondered if you could flesh that out and particularly talk about Mr. Sieber's points on Twitter that he made. Being the only black teacher in a school or in any context, being the only black person in a train carriage or walking into the BBC to record something, I'm very used to this. It's never talked about, but it requires a quick sort of like, okay, you have to ready yourself. And so you spend your whole time in a state of vigilance. I've said that word a lot, but it's true. And that is the opposite of comfort. Being hypervigilant means you're aware the whole time of how you are perceived. It's double consciousness. That's the term that W.E.B. Dubois used a long time ago, where you're aware of yourself from within, but you're aware of how you look from without too. So you're performing yourself. And that is something which I've got very used to. I don't even know what it means to be completely relaxed in a particular situation. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. You talk about the difference between white mediocrity and black excellence. That tension, I think is really interesting. Yeah. Mr. Seba, he asked me a very simple question. What is the change you want to see happen? That is the vital question. That's really where the reflections, the writing, the interrogation of my own experiences, that's where it takes you. You get to the end of that particular like cliff edge and you look out and you think, well, now what? What I want to see happen? And that is really part of the work that I'm doing now because you have to answer that question. How would you change the national curriculum? You would invite identities into the teaching space. You would acknowledge some of these very overbearing paradigms and ideologies that we're born into. That's what education does very badly. Once you know what white supremacy is, once you know what misogyny is, once you know what sexism is, homophobia, once you know them, you can see how they operate. And the curriculum just needs to actually be seen for what it is. I can see the gaps and silences and obfuscations and omissions that have resulted from a white supremacist way of thinking in the curriculum. And I can plug those gaps. I don't believe in a canon. Do you believe in a national curriculum? Because, I mean, that was formed in 1988 off the back of a right-wing desire to enforce a set of moral standards and ideology on pupils. Do you even believe that there should be a national curriculum? Standardisation is in the design principles of our curriculum because it follows a Victorian model. So talking about factory settings, batch production, cohorts and uniformity. That's why schools have uniform and everyone moves through the system at the same rate. If you remove that uniformity, then what are you left with? You're left with relationships with the world. So the curriculum really is a space for relationships to be developed. To me, if you cut everything else away, that's the fundamental design principle. So really, I feel like if there is a curriculum that you need to lean into, it's a curriculum that asks questions about identity and tries to find ways of people understanding themselves in various contexts. So the job then becomes how do you teach or train teachers to even think like that, to start with questions and curiosity and it sounds cheesy, but love, because a good relationship requires some empathy. And those are your grounding principles. After that, it's game on. Who knows what it looks like? I think that every kid in the country needs to watch and understand Dirty Dancing. You talk a lot about this in the yeah. book. Give me 20 seconds on Dirty Dancing. Gay. It's a core text that really explores the positioning of femininity and gender politics in a way in which masculinity is not leading the conversation. And it also explores issues that girls and women go through that are completely sidelined that boys and men need to understand if we're ever going to start tackling sexism. And it does it with a swan lift at the end, which is a great way to end any story. You're right. It is the greatest coming of age movie for females and that whole kind of nobody puts baby in a corner. 
We digress. I want to ask about Black History Month because you said this idea of having standardisation uniformity within schools has its limitations. So much around Black History Month is clumsily executed, but well-intentioned and is a huge educational opportunity. And you talked about perhaps some of the ignorance that your pupils had around even things like Stephen Lawrence. How can not just schools get this right, but say even companies? What does good practice look like? You need to accept that what you're doing is not tokenistic. If you're only thinking about it once a year, forget that. You might as well not think about it. If I spent one portion of the year thinking about homophobia, am I really, really anti-homophobia? you for real? I need to think about it every day. I need to be vigilant to it every day. You need to celebrate cultures, but that's not tokenistic. You can't just like wear the clothes and eat the food and go, hey, you need to address histories, narratives, because that's when you start to really see them as whole. And then the final thing is you need to recognize the traumas that people have been through. And that is not the same as understanding their histories. You can't understand who someone is, what they're going through and where they're going to end up if you don't acknowledge their traumas. So that's what Black History month best practice looks like. If you do just one of those things, you can't just talk about transatlantic slavery and not do anything celebratory. You can't just do celebratory and look at all the amazing musicians and sports people and people that have entertained white people, but not talk about the resistance and the oppression. So it's a three-pronged approach. One of the things that you wrote about was the Brixton riots and how you reframe that as the Brixton uprising. Very simple linguistic difference there, but so much meaning in that as well. I was shocked, but maybe not surprised by your chapter on Stephen Lawrence and this lack of knowledge about this crime. You know, and we've recently marked the 30 year anniversary of his death. Do you think that we're growing up in different times whereby actually that ignorance is perhaps becoming less because pupils now are armed with a smartphone? They're able to do their learning outside of the classroom? And do you think they're taking the initiative in a way that perhaps they weren't even 10, 15 years ago? I would need to ask some students. I do not know if that's happening. We have access to information, but why do people like me exist, like teachers? Because otherwise, you just point the kids in the direction of Google and a MOOC and just say, go and learn. That triangle that I talked about earlier, that is really important. Who is guiding the conversation? Who's doing the gentle push and pull that is learning? Who's shaping the conversation? Knowing that Stephen Lawrence existed is one thing. Looking up Wikipedia to see what happened is another understanding the context, being asked to formulate an idea or a response and looking at wider context, that's the skill of teaching. Unless that's happening, you can't guarantee that people are any more woke than previous generations. And also they're getting their information from mainstream social media channels, which may or may not be good at doing that job. Where do you think we are with woke? I Do you think that we've become a more enlightened, more aware of conditions, circumstances? Where are we at with that? Ever since it's been adopted as a pejorative term by right-wing leaning voices, you can see how wokeness as a pushback against social inequality, it sort of proves how much you need the term and you need the conversation because now it's been treated as an insult, a way of looking at the world which is problematic when actually it's always been about originally Black Americans being aware of injustice. Where are we now at the moment? I feel as though it's still very crude, most people's understanding 
of inequity, racial inequality. Most people think they understand what racism is, but actually they are thinking about interpersonal racism. To understand what a microaggression is, you need to really understand what covert racism looks like and feels like. So I think there's a lot of nuance missing. But in the same time, there are some big, back to the Duplo, big Duplo blocks that are not getting any attention. For example, white supremacy. I talk about white supremacy a lot because I never heard it being spoken about. Part of the conversation is people being unwilling or unable to talk about the actual root of this problem because it's not taught to us. One of the things that seems to me in the last two to three years as this conversation has reached higher prominence is this divergent reaction from white people. It's either self-flagellation and a performative allyship, however sincere, Black History Month within companies, for example, or we're going the other way. I don't know what to say anymore. This real sense of silencing. I can't say anything these days and I don't feel like I have a place in this conversation. So it can go from the extreme of there's no such thing as white supremacy, it's not even up for debate, complete denial that this is a problem, to slightly more innocent, I don't know what to say, so therefore I'm not going to say anything. I can't actually be part of this conversation. You know, in a sort of nervousness that this is all a bit awkward and a bit clumsy. It's way beyond nervousness and awkwardness and clumsiness. It's way, it's fear. It's terrifying to not know what to say, to not have a position. It feels like you're standing on quicksand. You don't know what you're going to say, if you're going to add to the problem, if you are part of the problem, if you're going to cause more offence. And we're in Britain as well. Do you know how debilitating fear is for British people? We're conditioned to be polite. You need to understand fear and fragility and guilt and shame. And to sort of get beyond that fear is to actually voice that fear. I'm scared and I don't know what to do. That is a very good place to start a conversation. So when people are in this point of like insecurity, it's because they haven't got a language to talk about it. So dismantling something to reveal it is a really scary thing. And then beyond that, the fear of getting it wrong is actually the fear of losing your power and your control and your agency. We don't want to lose our power, control and our agency. So it's better sometimes to just not say anything. But the problem with that is that nothing happens. It's a fight or flight response, really. A lot of people freeze or they flee and they leave the conversation. I was at home with my baby. I was alone. She'd been up all night and she was about four months old. And the doorbell rang and I ran down, opened the door and it was a young black guy and he was chugging for a charity. And he looked at my face. The first thing he said to me was, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. And I immediately went into that awkward English, overly apologetic, because the fact that he felt he had to say that to me, white woman opening the door with her baby and perhaps looking vulnerable and scared, Actually, I looked tired. The fact that he had to say those words, I just thought that is something I wouldn't have even acknowledged. There are logical reasons why he said that. And actually, you can learn these reasons. There are legacies of black threat stereotyping. There are legacies of the socialization of white femininity and black masculinity. And if everyone was taught this stuff, then it allows us to transcend it because we understand it. I can understand that situation. And it means my heart can be a little bit slower as I process it. 
the alternative is where these ideas have us by the throat and we cannot gain power over them. And that's where the fear comes from. It's the fear of not knowing because someone that knows how any example, how a car engine works, that person is not scared of taking apart a car engine. So I'm just someone, you read my CV earlier. What, am I remarkable? No, I've just gone out of my way to learn a few things. And that gives me this empowerment over the conversation. I'm very proud of being British sometimes more proud than others, sometimes not very proud at all, but I'm not holding it tightly. I can challenge it without destroying myself. The same with my straightness, my able-bodiedness, all these things that make me powerful, I can criticise them. I love the way that you unpick that. You're quite right. You can almost look at it from a greater distance and you're disassociating yourself from those isms from those ideologies. What, if any, lessons can we learn from the situation in schools and how that potentially can help us learn about the workplace? Because I feel like there is so much genuine will in the workplace right now. How can that be facilitated in a positive way? And what can we learn from, say, your experience in education and perhaps how we can help workplaces just do these things better, have these conversations more honestly? You can leverage quote-unquote marginalised perspectives because a marginalised perspective is actually a vantage point. So you need to really, really value the lived experiences of people who are not dominant and centred. If you can see something from angles that other people can't see it, that perspective is valuable. And things like white supremacy, the patriarchy, class, they blinker you. So you see things from a very limited perspective and it gives you power, but you can't see the bigger picture or the frame or the hand that made the frame. But when you're on the edges, you see it all. And that is the knowledge that you need. So you need to invite that knowledge in. So that's the first thing. Once you've done that and you've sort of leveraged identity, think a little bit harder about the points of tension because points of tension require attention. And that's where you make things better. If you've made a garment one size fits all and you wear it and it's rubbing in a particular place, that's the bit that needs attention. It's going to improve the fit of the garment. And society, most of our things are one size fits none. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for your time, your energy, your linguistic gymnastics and fabulous analogies. Thank you for making the time and space. We had a real chat. You can follow Jeffrey and you can buy all his books and also subscribe to his Substack. I'm going to put all the details in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to It's All Relative. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And why not subscribe to my weekly newsletter to hear more from me about how we are changing as consumers, workers and as citizens. Oh, and do rate us on Apple Reviews. It helps me keep this podcast going.